Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Storied Book Podcast. I am your host, Amanda Gray, and I am so excited to be here to talk to you today about book history. I have loved books for a very long time, and it means a lot to me that you have decided to sit down and listen to just a little bit about what I'm interested in um, and what I think other people might be interested in, too. So, Um, Today, you might be joining me from uh, your morning commute, earbuds in on the subway, or maybe you've got me plugged into the car, um, which leads me to my first topic. I want to talk to you about reading while commuting. Uh, It's something that we might take for granted, uh, this thought that we Uh, have always just read when we've had the opportunity, but that uh, very much isn't the case. And so today I'd like to maybe walk you through a little bit of that history. Uh, We can explore this topic together. Anyway, let's uh, head on in. So in starting to research this topic, um, I, I, I dove in. I'm a former journalist. I'm like to pride myself on my research ability, and I came to find out that there's not really a succinct history out there of commuters and their reading habits, especially looking at it through the lens of book history. So I'm going to tackle this question of why we read when we are traveling um, in two parts. We're going to look first at the history of commuting, and then the history of the affordability of books. And I'm going to make a a posit here that I believe that we're going to find a place where these two things intersect. People commuting more and more will cross with the lower cost of books, letting the every man get his hands on whatever he'd like to read. Where those two things meet is where we're going to find our origin of reading on the go. But before we get into that, let's talk about why. Why would people want to read while traveling? It's something that varies from person to person, but uh, a a simple internet search will bring up hundreds of links on tips of how to read on your commute, uh, things that'll make it easier for you to read, to get in a few chapters while waiting for your train. But at its most basic, perhaps reading while commuting is coming from a desire to be entertained. Book lovers will read anywhere, uh, as I assume some of you can attest to. Uh, Perhaps it might stem from the desire to make the most of your time. Uh, People might view that time on the train is wasted, uh, and they're looking for a way to get the most out of that dedicated time every day. And perhaps it's out of necessity. Though many of us read for fun, others do need to read for work or for school, myself included. So uh, that time on the commute is valuable and a welcome period where you have the opportunity to get in those required pages before reaching your destination. So uh, I think we also need to talk about what type of commute you can read on. It's hard to read while driving. Dear God, I hope you are not reading while driving. But I'll circle back to this topic at the end of the episode when I talk about the future of reading on the go. When we think of reading while commuting, we are mostly talking about people who are taking public transportation, such as buses or trains. You can also lump in taxis or ride-sharing services in here, as well as plane rides. Basically, anything where you are not controlling the vehicle is what we're talking about when we talk about reading while commuting. So, what was commuting like, though, before the invention of the subway? Do people commute in ancient times? Uh, The answer is surprisingly yes. 
In a fascinating piece by Jonathan English for City Lab, he highlights the Marchetti constant, and apologies to Cesare Marchetti, the Italian physicist who came up with this constant, if I have absolutely butchered his name. But uh, the Marchetti constant argues that people have always been willing to travel about 30 minutes from their home each way for work. And by always, I mean always. English traces this back to ancient Rome and highlights how this impacted city design for literally millennia. You can trace it uh, in in the cities themselves. And so I will make sure to drop the link to the full article on Twitter, at storiedbookpod. Please follow for more book facts, interesting words, and the like. Uh, but to sum it up, English ha- walks us through the history of major cities and how commuting times, first on foot, then by animals, carriages, and then the big game changer by rail, um, he, he traces this through history, kind of proving the Marchetti constant. And so railways really are what we're looking at here. Railways opened up the possibilities for cities to develop bigger than ever, and even included the development of suburbs where people could live outside the city and then take the train into work and then back home again. London we're going to look at London a lot today, is one city in particular where you can see the development of the city based on the advent of railways, especially during the Industrial Revolution. Uh, so we're looking roughly around 1840 CE. Um, the The addition of streetcars and bicycles shortly thereafter also impacted city city growth. Um, We can look at Chicago as an example, um, New York City too. And the latter half of the 19th century showed even more growth. And then came the subway. Electric trains that helped an increased urban population make it to work on time in in the early 20th century. And then came the expressway. Uh, Post-World War II, cities like Atlanta and Los Angeles uh, sprawling to new territory as people began driving themselves to and from work. So, commuting doesn't really help us pinpoint this, does it? Because people have been commuting for forever. So, we have to look, though, at when more people were commuting. And I think we can try and maybe look at the Industrial Revolution onward. So let's kind of keep that time frame in our heads while we are looking at uh, through the lens of reading. So when we're looking through the lens of reading, what are we looking for? Um, I think we're looking for a spot in time where more and more people are commuting, along with the advent of cheaper book manufacturing, which will increase not only the overall number of books in society, but where those books are located and who is reading them. I can point to a number of sources for this, um, but to put it in my own words, we want a time when the number of public libraries has increased, along with the increase of personal libraries for the average person, And we also want a time when more and more people are reading, uh, which does tend to increase with the prevalence of books. So, all of that in mind, trying to pack it all in, I think it's pretty clear that we need to head back to London, to the mid-19th century, to the railway stations beginning to dot the city and the nearby countryside. Uh, To be completely honest, it was really difficult to find evidence for this, but one book in particular was extremely helpful. It's called The Meaning of the Library, an extremely approachable collection of scholarly writings edited by Alice Crawford. Chapter 6, Literature and the Library in the 19th Century, written by John Sutherland, uh, gives me the proof I need, though. So, what does Sutherland say? Uh, He 
looks at London in particular in this chapter, looking at the growth of libraries after the 1850 Public Libraries Act, which gave local communities the power to establish free libraries. You know, it, it really did take a while for these libraries to catch on. Uh, Manchester first, followed by other small towns. But uh, the overall presence of these libraries did help raise the literacy rates of the lower classes, which is something we're looking for because you need that, that saturation, that concentration of readers in a society to have the quote, like, every man be a, be a prominent reader, be picking up books regularly. So you have this literacy rate increase in lower classes. Uh, but these libraries really didn't stock the type of books that people wanted to read. Um, most of these books, uh, Southern, or most of these libraries, Sutherland points out, uh, really focused on nonfiction. But what people really wanted was fiction, which was um, viewed by many of the elite as a, a lot of, like, pawdry, like, filth. So... Some enterprising, enterprising folks, however, took advantage of this desire for fiction and opened subscription libraries that were cheap, um, originally basing them inside news agencies, which were already starting to pop up everywhere. Um, one such gentleman, Charles Edward Muddy, I'm probably butchering that, but Mr. Muddy here charged one guinea per year, according to Sutherland, and had absolutely zero qualms about stocking those baser stories that people wanted to read. But it's not Muddy we're actually going to look at today to talk about commuting and reading. We're going to look at his biggest rival, Mr. William Henry Smith, who opened stalls in train stations and, in my opinion, helped fuel the beginnings of reading while commuting. Now, Smith's railway shops are very interesting. Um, they were the primary suppliers of books printed by a gentleman named George Rutledge, a cutthroat printer who pirated books from the U.S. and printed them illegally in London. These paperbacks were easy to pick up and read, and Smith's slogan was, in fact, quote, He who rides may read, which I think tells you exactly where I'm going with all this. Uh, Smith sold uh, yellowbacks, which were a type of cheaply printed paperback book. And um, all these books, all these paperbacks were very cheap because of the technological advancements of book printing at the time. So uh, I'm going to read just a few quotes from Sutherland's chapter here. Um, so uh, to quote Sutherland, Railway termini created the most fluid conjuries of, of reader in the Victorian period and fostered two distinct kinds of library. One was the uniform cheap book, pocket-sized, ideal for a long journey or two. To answer the demand, Rutledge's one-shilling, quote, railway library was launched in 1848. The series took off, aided by shrewd advertisement. Four years later, George Rutledge complacently noted seeing all six other passengers in his first-class compartment reading his edition of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uh, his edition was stolen from the U.S. Um, so uh, another uh, another quote, um, which talks, which gives us uh, an idea about the environment at the time. Um, it was necessary for books to leap out and catch the passing eye. Rail travelers do not browse. They snatch, pay, and run. Since there was a cloak of invisibility for the typical single male passenger, more libertine wares could be offered, even French novels. There were regular rumblings about yellowback immortality, mild as W.H. Smith's offerings were. And then the one final quote that I think illustrates the whole scenario that Smith set up here 
Smith's myriad railway outlets offered books, quote, of the day, prominently, that could be borrowed at a departure station and returned at the destination station, which I think is fascinating. So here we have the origin. Um, we have a spot in time where some enterprising individuals, like, brought this idea of reading on the train to the forefront. I'm not saying it didn't happen beforehand, I'm not, or before this, but I'm saying this is a point in time where we can point at and say prevalence of reading while commuting started here. So, we've got the origin. Where has it gone in the century plus sense? Um, I think it can be pretty easily assumed that people continue to read through the rest of the 19th and 20th centuries, and yes, people still read today, uh, as crazy of a thought as that is. But changes in technology have given people other ways to read on commutes, and that is changing how we consume books now. I'm thinking primarily about the audiobook and uh, e-readers, like uh, digital readers, for or readers of digital books. So, I looked a little bit into the history of this, and it is crazy. Um, I was really surprised to find out that the first audiobook was actually recorded in 1932, uh, created for blind readers, which I thought was pretty fascinating. Um, PBS did a story on audiobooks in 2017 on the 20th anniversary of the release of Amazon's portable audiobook device. Isn't that interesting? I, I really couldn't believe that Amazon invented that audiobook device as early as 1997. It's somehow earlier and later than I thought. I guess I didn't really know what to expect, but it, it still surprised me. Um, but looking at audiobooks themselves, we've had them on cassette tapes since roughly the 1960s and CDs since the 1980s, which have given car-bound commuters the chance to listen to books hands-free while driving. So we can look at that as like a form of reading a book here. Now, I do want to put a pin in that. I think that audiobooks bring up an interesting like discourse on like what is reading. Can you read just by listening or is reading like a requirement of seeing words on the page? I think that is a discussion that requires a bit more nuance. So, I'm not going to get too deep into that here. I just wanted to acknowledge that I do know that there are some feelings there, but I do think that as far as reading while commuting, we I think we can count audiobooks as that as the same sort of consumption. So ebooks, um, in the same vein, are also probably older than you think. They're definitely older than I expected them to be. Uh, according to the US government publishing office, uh, the first ebook was made in 1971 when Project Gutenberg launched and the US Constitution was released in a digital format. Uh, but I think what we're actually looking for here is the first ebook reader, like a device that you could take with you while you commute instead of like hauling your desktop onto the train, which I don't think is possible. Um, so, looking at the first ebook reader, that award goes to Sony, who released the Libri in 2004 and then the Sony Reader in 2006. Uh, but the most popular e reader, the Amazon Kindle, was released in 2007. So now with the ubiquitous smartphone, though, you can just download an app. I mean, I pretty much always have an ebook on my person because I have 
an app that lets me uh, check out ebooks from the local library, no e-reader required at all. So um, that's kind of tracing it from its origins to how people were reading in the p- recent past and the present. But what does the future of reading while commuting look like? Um, I hinted at this at the beginning, but I think it's honestly going to circle back around to the library and the train station model, but with, like, a technological spin. And this isn't hyperbole. I literally am talking about train stations providing books. Uh, Looking at, like, Philadelphia, for instance, has put a virtual library inside of one of their train stations where commuters can check out books, movies, and music by scanning a QR code with their phones at like a virtual kiosk. Um, Public Libraries Online did a story about this, which is supported by a partnership with Dunkin' Donuts. And in 2012, the Fullerton Public Library in Southern California installed a book vending machine in its train station giving commuters free access to nearly 500 books um, right there in that little box, kind of like a red box, but for books. And though it's not quite there yet, soon car owners will actually be able to get in on the reading while traveling effort, thanks to self-driving cars. Um, I know it's years away, but mark my words, someday drivers, please hear that in air quotes, will be able to get into a vehicle and not have to look at the road at all. They'll have time to do the daily crossword, work on a knitting project, or yes, pick up the latest bestseller for a bit of light reading on the way into the office. But thank you so much for joining me. I just have a few credits and acknowledgements. Thank you to Purple Planet Music for the use of our opening uh, theme song. The song Cascades is provided as royalty-free, and that is such a great service to upstart young podcasts like this one. Thanks also to Annette Lamb in the Fall 2019 History of the Book course for IUPUI for the opportunity to have such a creative option for our final project. And thanks to you for joining me. Let me know on Twitter. Um, you can find me at the Amanda Gray or uh, the podcast at Storied Book Pod what you'd like to hear about next. As Neil Gaiman said, a book is a dream that you hold in your hands. May you dream well, friends. Until next time, I've been Amanda Gray, and this has been the Storied Book Podcast.